It's like Voldemort. Why should I empower Jesus by saying he who shall not be named? I believe that by saying Christ, what I'm saying is the human figure who lives and died as a mortal, as he was viewed by his followers who thought he was Messiah. So I only say Christ when I'm talking about the Christian perception of Jesus. But I really think we need to defang it. I think we need to um, neutralize these words that are thought to have a lot of power. I mean, I grew up hearing people say Yashka or saying just very silly reworkings of Jesus's name. To me, that empowers Jesus. Jesus, in my opinion, was a person, again, who lived and died as a human being. Nothing beyond that. Uh, and so let's call him Jesus, please. And then it's okay to say Christ as he was perceived that way through his followers. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. On October 28, 1965, Pope Paul VI promulgated Nostra the Declaration on the Relation of the Church with Non-Christian Religions of the Second Vatican Council. The process began when Pope John XXIII endorsed the composition of a document that would attempt to establish a more positive approach to the relationship between the Catholic Church and Judaism. That event cleared the way for a potentially better relationship between Roman Catholics and Jews. Crucially, the Catholic Church has also officially rejected attempts at converting Jews to Christianity. Despite this positive start, the relationship between Jews and Catholics remains a complicated one. Many people argue that Catholics have made huge steps in the right direction that should be celebrated, but others suggest that things aren't quite so simple. Some question how much these positive steps have trickled down to Catholics in the pews. Others emphasize that Nostra Aetate was supposed to be the first of several positive moves toward dealing with the Church's history of anti-Judaism, but instead has been treated by many Catholics as the final word on the subject, thereby ignoring Catholic complicity in anti-Jewish persecution for millennia and pretending that the process of repentance is finished. Even more troubling is the suggestion that Nostra Aetate implicitly provides absolution to the Church, saying that anti-Jewish attitudes were never part of Church doctrine, and that therefore the Church bears no responsibility for horrible events like the Holocaust. Ralph Salvatic famously expressed concern that Catholic overtures toward Jews could lead to attempts at converting them. And some wonder whether there is an intentional double entendre when Pope John Paul II called Jews the elder brothers of Christians, when Jews who study Stafer Breshit know that the older brother is the rejected brother. To discuss the state of Jewish-Catholic dialogue in 2022 and the possibilities for its positive ramifications as well as its potential dangers, I was honored to speak to Dr. Malka Z. Simkovich, the Crown Ryan Chair of Jewish Studies and the Director of the Catholic Jewish Studies Program at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. She is the author of The Making of Jewish Universalism, From Exile to Alexandria, and Discovering Second Temple Literature, The Scriptures and Stories that Shaped Early Judaism which received the 2019 AJL Judaica Reference Honor Award. Dr. Simikovich's articles have been published in academic journals such as the Harvard Theological Review and the Journal for the Study of Judaism, and in mainstream publications such as the Jewish Review of Books and the Christian Century. She is involved in numerous interreligious dialogue projects, which help to increase understanding and friendship between Christians and Jews. Dr. Malka Simkovich, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thank you for having me, Scott. 
You're the director of the Catholic Jewish Studies Program at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. So my opening question is a simple one. What is the meaning of Catholic Jewish studies, particularly in a religious Catholic college? Well, that's not a simple question at all. That's a very difficult question to answer uh, because we are now witness to a unprecedented relationship and, dare I say, friendship between Jews and specifically the Catholic Church, which really began in 1965 with what's known as Nostra Aetate, when the Catholic Church officially rescinded its accusation against Jews for deicide, for God murder. Uh, but it's taken about 40 or 50 years for Jews to collectively organize themselves and respond sort of more methodically. And that's really happening now. I mean, only in the past 10 years, especially in the Orthodox community, have there been uh, formal statements in response to the overtures of the church. There's a lot going on. It, it's an exciting time to be part of it. So what does it mean, Catholic Jewish studies? And talking about Nostra Aetate, you're talking mainly about the dialogue issue. But it sounds like there's also such a thing as Catholic Jewish studies. What would that mean? I think it means whatever people want it to mean. There are a couple dozen centers in various campuses in North America and elsewhere that are devoted to variations on the theme of the Catholic Jewish or the Christian Jewish relationship. And so depending on what campus you're on, you might have access through the center to courses on the history of Jewish Christian relations, whether that's ancient or medieval or modern, or whether it's more of having access not to courses, but to programming. At Catholic Theological Union, I do teach a course on the relationship between Catholics and Jews in modern times. But the Catholic Jewish Studies program that I direct offers students and affiliates of Catholic Theological Union access to encounter Judaism as a living religion. And so that's the goal of many of these centers or places where you might be able to study Catholic Jewish studies. They're mostly in Christian settings and they're designed to implement the teachings of Nostra Aetate by bringing living Judaism into the Catholic world. So it's not quite even. We don't really have Jewish campuses that are uh, you know, creating these centers or these programs and bringing Catholicism to the Jews, I would venture to guess that there's less of a need for that. So I'm going to come back to that. I want to ask about that in a moment. But first, I want to ask you about what you said regarding the past 10 years, this newfound implementation of the reforms of Vatican II among Catholics trying to have dialogue with Jews, or perhaps better stated, a Jewish response to that as opposed to ignoring it for the most part. Because from where I sit, and I'm not an expert at all, I see a lot and I hear a lot about evangelical overtures to Jews and a Jewish response, a lot of dialogue in the evangelical community. I hear a lot less of that regarding Roman Catholicism. So you're saying that something new is happening that is a little bit different. Is that right? Well, I think this has to do with where we sit. I think in Israel, there is a more well-developed relationship with the Protestant world and specifically the fundamentalist uh, what we would call the evangelical worlds of Christianity. Uh, in Israel, this is important. Obviously, there are political motivations for this relationship in terms of you know, the Zionist aspirations, although they come from very different theological spaces. They align in their political interests. That is not my space at all. And in general, I would say 
The Catholic Church has had an icy relationship with the state of Israel. It only opened formal relations in the early 90s. Uh, the Pope very famously visited the Western Wall, the Kotal, in 2000. This was a huge deal uh, because it symbolized a sort of thawing of that icy relationship. But the Catholic Church has to be very careful when it comes to the state of Israel, uh, in large part because of considerations that I think many of my friends in Israel don't realize, which is that there are bishops, there are uh, Catholic dioceses in Middle Eastern regions that are not stable. And to make a public overture to Israel could destabilize and even endanger these communities. And they're all, of course, there are all kinds of other theological reasons why they might not want to attribute theological significance to the founding of the state of Israel. So the situation is very different from the Catholic perspective. This is not to say that they are not a true friend of the Jewish people. It's a complicated relationship, but it is a relationship that I think needs to be taken very seriously. Um, and my friends in Israel, when they think about Christianity, many of them think about evangelical Christianity, um, and they either are uh, eager to embrace it because of those political alliances, or they want to stay far away from it. And so this is not my world at all. Okay, I'm going to come back to some of those other ideas in just a moment. I know I've said that before, but you say something that I want to go into what you just mentioned, because you mentioned the theological impediments from the Catholic side, perhaps from the Jewish side too. Rav Soloveitchik, for example, very famously in Kol Dodido Fake, mentioned six knocks that God is knocking by creating the state of Israel, one of which was that it was a refutation of longstanding church doctrine that the Jews had been rejected by God, and the proof is that they're not in Israel. The state of Israel itself is a refutation of longstanding church doctrine. Regarding that, I want to ask also about Rav Soloveitchik in general, because Rav Soloveitchik also wrote an essay, Confrontation, which also included as a coda a bit of a psak, a halachic decision, where he said that Jews and other religions, he didn't say Catholics per se, but this was taking place around the time of Vatican II, Jews and members of other religions are allowed to engage in dialogue and even are encouraged to engage in dialogue when it comes to universal concerns, what Rav Soloveitchik calls the public world of humanitarian and cultural endeavors. But when it comes to private religious commitment, he thought that it was forbidden. So today, in the common dialogue that we have with Catholics today over the past 10 years and perhaps going back further, are we following Rav Soloveitchik's rule or is this moving in a different direction? This is the question that people always ask me. Now, just to clarify, Confrontation was published, I think, in 1964. And of course, you know, you're less than two decades out from the Holocaust. There's a specific historical moment in which this um, piece is, is written. Uh, it's originally a lecture given, I believe, to a an audience of Catholics in Boston. That needs to be noted. Uh, and we have to keep that intended audience in mind as we read the article. Uh, yes. So the Rav was against theological dialogue because he was concerned that at its essence, the Jewish Christian relationship is not one of mutuality. It's not one of equality. We've always been what the Rav referred to as the community of the few. And with Christian hegemony uh, being the community of the many, there's a power differential that could create uh, an expectation of transactionalism and worse at uh, in actualization of that expectation by force. The situation is different now in the sense that, well, I'll say, first I'll say in 1964 and today in 2022, Catholics in North America, and this is a broad generalization, I'm just going to say it, of course, there are 
are exceptions, but broadly speaking, the Catholic experience in the United States has been one of a minority experience. And so even as Jews, and I never as a child knew the difference between Protestant, Catholic, who cares? They all want to kill us. That's, look what they did to us in the Crusades, the pogroms. You know, we signify the rejection of their God, um, the, the cruel death of their God. And so they hate us. It doesn't matter what kind of Christian they are. From the Catholic perspective, Catholics were persecuted in the United States and treated as a minority and marginalized. Now, that is not to justify the very real, tangible, and continually present anti-Judaism that we find among Catholics today. But just to note that this uh, binary of the community of the few and the community of the many, I'm not sure that all Catholics would accept that in the context of 21st century America. So that's one. The, the fear of transactionalism is a very legitimate fear. And in fact, I see the Rav being justified in his concerns in the dialogue groups that I am in. Nevertheless, I remain in them. But the desire to share ideas so easily bleeds into this desire of like, well, why can't you remain a Jew and just take on Jesus as your God? I'll say Christ, but of course, in that context that they're speaking to me. Um, and there is a movement among the Catholics called Hebrew Catholics, and you can look this up, HebrewCatholics.net, I think is one of the main websites, where there's a movement within very sophisticated Catholic circles to try to make a space for Jews to remain Jews and take on uh, Jesus as their God. Of course, it sounds a lot like Jews for Jesus, but it's geared towards Catholics who want to practice Judaism and want to somehow identify as Jews. So this is not a violation, Malka, of the stricture against trying to convert Jews because this is allowing Catholics to take on Jewish practice. Yes, and they take it very seriously. They take, uh, thank you for mentioning that, because the Catholics are not supposed to be having any kind of mission towards Jews. Um, and the theologians who are advancing the kind of blurring of the boundaries that I'm talking about, uh, theologians especially, I'm thinking of Gavin DaCosta, uh, maybe Bruce Marshall, maybe, and some others, uh, they take the prohibition against missionizing seriously. And they claim, they purport to respect the integrity of Judaism, whether I think approach does or doesn't is beside the point. The Rav's concerns, I think, have great legitimacy. And any Jew who is going into these spaces of theological dialogue, I think, needs to be very clear at the outset, at the outset that, number one, dialogue cannot happen without allowing both sides to self-define and to self-define their boundaries. It's extraordinarily important. I think that's very important as well to hear that. My own understanding of the Rav is largely predicated not only on confrontation, but also what he wrote in The Halachic Mind, The Yellow Book. And in that book, he talks not only about the individual faith commitment of each religion, but the integrity of each religion. And I understand not just the fear, obviously he's speaking from a position of we don't want them to convert Jews, but there's also an idea that every religious community, there's nothing to talk about, even though they might on the surface appear to have similarities, fundamentally, at least as I understand what he means, underneath that similar facade, they're at a fundamental level very different and there's nothing really to compare. You're only comparing something which appears similar. In other words, that really that faith commitment can't be compared and should you try to do so, you're fundamentally violating both of them. Anyway, that's that's how I understand what he means by that. Well, I would never try to you know, take on any claim that the Rav makes because that's a joke. I would never, I would never, um, in public or private, try to argue with Rav Soloveitchik. I, I, I have like a tiny crumb of the knowledge that he had. 
But there's an idea of universalism that goes back to the Second Temple period, which suggests that all people, regardless of their ethno-geographic, cultural, religious differences, that all people can worship the same God alongside one another and maintain those differences. And that idea is an ancient one. So I think it's a powerful idea that can be used towards partnering and collaborating and cultivating friendships with other non-Jews, with with people of other faiths, while insisting on the separateness of these various faith groups. Okay. I'm going to go back now to what I said I would get back to. I want to refer to what you said, that perhaps the instigation is coming more from the Catholic side with less of a response on the Jewish side, maybe now a little bit more, but we're not setting up departments of Catholic-Jewish dialogue at YU, for example. And I'm going to ask something which may be controversial, I don't know, but I'd like to talk about the declaration of Nostra Etate a little bit with you. And if you don't mind, I'm just going to read the relevant portion that I saw. It is obviously in English. Officially, it's called the Declaration on the Relations of the Church with Non-Christian Religions, and Section 4 is that which deals with relations with the Jews. And here's what I want to quote to you. Since the spiritual patrimony common to Christians and Jews is thus so great, this sacred synod wants to foster and recommend that mutual understanding and respect, which is the fruit above all, of biblical and theological studies, as well as of fraternal dialogues. True, the Jewish authorities and those who followed their lead pressed for the death of Christ. Still, What happened in his passion cannot be charged against all the Jews without distinction then alive, nor against the Jews of today. Although the church is the new people of God, the Jews should not be presented as rejected or accursed by God as if this followed from the Holy Scriptures. All should see to it then that in catechetical work or in the preaching of the word of God, they do not teach anything that does not conform to the truth of the gospel and the spirit of Christ. Furthermore, in her rejection of every persecution against any man, the church, mindful of the patrimony she shares with the Jews, and moved not by political reasons, but by the gospel's spiritual loves, decries hatred, persecutions, displays of anti-Semitism, directed against Jews at any time and by anyone. I've read a history of this declaration, and it certainly was not a simple matter to get it passed in October 1965. This was something which took a long time. There were many different versions. And frankly, this is a little bit of a watered-down version from the original that was suggested, or one of the versions that was suggested. And James Carroll, who's a writer now, who once was a priest, he was originally the chaplain at BU, I believe, in the late 60s, he talks about listening with fellow seminarians as the Pope's voice came crackling over the radio. And I want to talk about the words that he quotes, as if this followed from the Holy Scriptures. In this declaration, the church is saying that, of course, anti-Semitism is inadmissible. Anyone who believes this follows from the Christian Bible is mistaken. It's just not true. And he said, they were all sort of looking at each other saying, but it does follow from the Christian scriptures. Now, obviously, I'm not a Catholic, and it's not my place to start telling Catholics what they believe and what they don't. My first question then about this is James Carroll's questions, really. How do Catholics really handle the contradiction, at least what seems to me to be a contradiction, of saying, well, that's not really what it says, even though for 2,000 years or so, they thought that's what it said? That is a fantastic question. And here again, it's helpful to think about the distinction between how Catholics approach their sacred scriptures versus fundamentalist Protestant communities, evangelical communities who do insist on the literal... uh, you know, what we would call the shot meaning of the text. Traditionally, and again, I'm painting with broad strokes, the Catholics um, are more flexible when it comes to the interpretation of their scriptures. In fact, 
Catholics involved in Jewish-Christian dialogue like to compare the tradition of the church fathers who interpreted freely sometimes the scriptures to midrashic traditions that were preserved by the rabbis. And even today, Catholics are not reading their scriptures literally uh, the way that evangelical Christians are. And this applies to the Hebrew Bible as well. You might have an evangelical who reads the stories of creation in Genesis as absolutely literal, but you're not likely to find a devout Catholic who will read those stories in the same literal way. And that is why I think many of the greatest Christian biblical scholars that have been produced over the past century or maybe recent decades are Catholic. Uh, they're much more open to biblical criticism and they're much more open to, on a theological level, revisiting, if they really are committed to the words of Nostra Aetate, revisiting central passages and uh, recontextualizing them in a way that is uh, not going to be weaponized against the Jews. Now, on the other hand, you do have texts in the New Testament that are kind of unequivocally anti-Jewish. The book of Revelation, the letter to the Hebrews. I mean, these texts present the people of Israel, the Jews, the older people of Israel, almost demonically. Um, and then you have the Gospels, Matthew 28, where the Jews collectively say, his blood be upon us and on our children and John 8, in which Jesus called uh, the children of Abraham, children of the devil. And then Catholic theologians and scholars have to do somersaults. Well, the Greek is Judaios, which means Judeans. He was only talking about the Judeans who were there and not all the other Jews in general. To me, that's a lot of baloney. Uh, whether uh, the writers of these gospels were thinking about Judeans in the room or not, they were almost immediately perceived as texts about the Jews all Jews. Um, and so these texts are really difficult. I would say that the default is to read these texts as anti-Jewish, and then you have to be intentional, conscientious, and put in a lot of proactive work to excise that anti-Jewish reading out. And it's happening. Uh, it's happening in an uneven way. And I don't know that these readings have made it down to the pews. I've heard many homilies that are shockingly anti-Jewish by what people themselves as progressive and not as anti-Semitic. So there's a lot of work ahead of us. Then I'm going to go even further, Malika, because this is also raised by James Carroll, at least implicitly. There's a second question that comes out of Nostra Aetate in terms of why it was promulgated in the first place. This obviously, as you said, happened 20 years after the Holocaust. And by saying, and this is something which, again, he suggests, I'm simply quoting him, he suggests that by saying that, oh, as if this is actually in the scriptures, and that's the mistake. In some ways, this declaration served as much to absolve the Catholic Church of guilt as it did to encourage dialogue with Jews. In other words, by saying, oh, Christianity does not and never taught this. Maybe individuals misunderstood what the Bible says, but we never believed this. We're simply saying what we all really know to be true if you read the Bible properly. So it's one thing to say we're going to turn somersaults, as you said, to understand what it really means according to the modern understanding promulgated in 1965. It's another thing to absolve yourself and say, well, we never actually believed any of those terrible things like deicide. The Catholic Church, or at least many prominent leaders in the Catholic Church, do, as you suggest, try to make a, I think, a very artificial differentiation between the, the Jew hatred of the Nazis and the historic Jew hatred of the Church. And I think Jim Carroll is absolutely correct 
that without that historic, very, very deeply rooted uh, Jew hatred that was promulgated uh, by the church, the Holocaust could not have happened where it happened. This effort to make this differentiation uh, continues. And in 1998, the church produced a document called We Remember, which was intended to honor the uh, victims of the Holocaust by decrying anti-Semitism. But you can read this online. It's accessible to anybody. And as a Jew reading this document, you might be upset or even disturbed to see the way in which the writers of this official document exonerate Christian leaders. They say, well, some Catholics, some Christians might have been anti-Semitic in ways that were ultimately harnessed by the Nazis. But the Holocaust really has nothing to do with Christianity. Unfortunately, there are even Jewish scholars who have accepted this position. And in one of the very first Jewish responses to the Catholic Overture of Friendship, uh, a response called Dabru Emet, which uh, was produced, I think, in 2000 or 2001, uh, it lists 10 statements that Jews and Christians can agree on. And one of those statements, the most controversial one, I think, was that had Nazism been successful, it would have turned its ugly head against the Christians. Um, this kind of what if tomfoolery, in my opinion, mm -hmm. uh, is unhelpful, destructive, and ultimately very silly. I don't see how it's helpful. And I also don't see how that could have possibly been true. I think it was almost like what the Rav warned about, like we're going to throw the Christians a bone and tell them they don't have to worry anymore about the Holocaust. I'm glad you mentioned We Remember, because I've always found that also to be a very troubling document. Gary Wills, the well-known Catholic writer, describes We Remember. I'll actually quote him right now. He says, the effect is of a sad person toiling up a hill, racked with emotion and ready to beat his breast, only to have him plump down on his knees, sigh heavily, and point to some other fellow who caused all the trouble. Wow, I never heard that. You're going to have to send me the citation of that. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, and he, he says that fundamentally, and we remember what's happening here is an absolving of the Catholic Church as such, basically saying Nazism was a neo-pagan movement that has nothing to do with Christianity. And there were some Christians who didn't do enough to protest it. That's how he reads it effectively. And my question really is this. I'm not just trying to throw the Catholics under a bus here, but how are we supposed to move forward when documents like these are continually promulgated? I'll say even further, perhaps this isn't a fair thing to talk about, but I've heard people complain quietly about the statement of John Paul II and also, I believe, Benedict. They said things like, the Jews are our older brothers. Now, anyone who knows Tanakh understands the older brother is usually the brother who's cursed. So even though they're saying they're our brothers, they're also saying we're a now, admittedly, Jews say they're Asav, so it's kind of equal, but we're not the ones who've been persecuting them for 2,000 years, so it's a little bit different. How are we supposed to move forward when they're not necessarily really fully confronting what they're saying at the highest reaches of the Catholic Church? And I'll take it even further. I've also heard it said that because of the original problems that Catholics saw in Nostratate, they knew that it wasn't the final statement. It was the first step in a series of steps that were supposed to happen. And now it seems a more conservative, perhaps, Catholic Church looks back and says, no, we finished that. We took care of it. It's already done. No need to go further. Our hands are clean at this point. 
So I'm saying a lot now and perhaps I'm off base, but how are we supposed to move forward with attitudes like that at the top? First of all, it's a great question. I think the situation is very complex. You know, on the one hand, you have statements like we remember. And on the other hand, you have the written note of John Paul II that he put into the Kotel, the Western Wall. And if you, you look up that note, I don't know it by heart, it's only like eight or nine lines. It's very simple, but it's extraordinarily moving. And it is much more of an acknowledgement of the role of Christianity in the harm that has been done against the Jewish people for millennia. So I have been reading a fantastic book that was just published, not just, maybe two years ago, by a wonderful Israeli scholar named Karma Ben Yochanan. And Karma Ben Yochanan just wrote this book. It's on my desk. It's called Jacob's Younger Brother, Christian Jewish Relations After Vatican II. And she means Catholic Jewish relations after Vatican II. That's a great title. It's a great title because she talks very overtly about the problems of the sibling metaphor, 100%. It's very problematic from the Jewish end. But she also makes an interesting distinction that I had never thought about. And the distinction that she makes is the difference between the papal documents that are of a scholarly, theological, formal nature and the social gesturing that you find various popes engaging in, let's say, when they visit Auschwitz or when they, I mean, really, I'm talking here about John Paul the second going to Israel. And so she points out, I think very brilliantly, that there is a dissonance between what they feel that they can do theologically in those formal documents and what they can do sort of outside of the Catholic ivory tower in terms of making it clear to their Jewish brethren that we want a friendship. Now, this is problematic because we know dogma always has practical consequences. And violent dogma leads to violent physical harm. I mean, as a Jew, right? Like what other truth do we know besides that truth? <laughs> um, but the fact is that they sort of did try to walk this balance, uh, especially Benedict, who's a theological conservative. Uh, and John Paul II was more of a conservative than people have given him credit for because he got there, he went out into the field and he, he engaged in this kind of social gesturing that sort of branded him as a friend of the Jewish people, and yet his writings are not quite there. So mm -hmm. I, I think it's a very interesting and helpful uh, way of understanding the situation. Then let's talk a little bit more about that, because you're talking about the official papal pronouncements alongside how people act in the real world, because it's almost the opposite from what I've heard. I've heard, and you alluded to this a little bit before, you've said you've heard many sermons that have been quite anti-Jewish. Here's my question. I had thought, and perhaps this is wrong, that after Vatican II, official Catholic teaching was saying no more missionizing to the Jews. We have to treat the Jews as brothers, etc. But on the street level, so to speak, that didn't necessarily take hold as quickly if it took hold at all. So am I wrong? No, you're not wrong at all. It hasn't happened on the pews, as they say. I'm only talking about the highest levels of Catholic leadership where you see that difference between the more conservative writings, the sort of pullback, as you mentioned, following Nostra Aetate, there's a little bit of a pullback. And of course, Nostra Aetate is an ambiguous document. So if the Jews are not accused of deicide, what is their status in the eyes of God? Can they be saved outside of, pardon me, Christ? So, um, so there were so many 
directions that you could take that document in and you do see a pullback in later text. So you're right. On the one hand, the, the Catholic leadership is engaged in the social gesturing of friendship. Did the teachings of Nosferatu come down to the pews? No, you see the reverse, right? And you, the reverse is that they might be recognizing that technically the church told them that they have to be nice to the Jews, but um, in terms of lay teaching, what's happening in Catholic high schools, you could open up even Catholic textbooks that are used today and find some really shocking representations of the Jewish people. Um, and so I, I like to tell people that. Uh, when I was speaking to um, a colleague of mine at Catholic Theological Union, a very well-known priest named John Polakowski, who's very involved in Jewish-Christian relations, he told me that he had once asked another very famous priest, I don't, it was a cardinal, I don't remember which cardinal it was, but the question is how long will it take for the church to consistently and thoroughly implement the teachings of Nostra Aetate? And this person responded, oh, about 500 years. <laughs> like that's the pace at which the church works and we have to be patient. I'm going to be mediac in something that you said, Malka, because I've heard you say repeatedly anti-Jewish or anti-Judaism, not anti-Semitic, which I know is something that the Catholic church, it's a distinction which it has made. Anti-Semitism is on some level racial and they say that's not acceptable, but anti-Judaism or anti-Jewish, there has been a place for it in the past. I think Nostratate is somewhat ambiguous about that point as well. Is there still anti-Judaism in doctrine? That's a really tough question. And you are right to detect that I am careful to say anti-Judaism and not anti-Semitism, which is a relatively modern word that was not invented by Jews. Um, and I do think it's problematically racial. So I do use anti-Judaism. Are the documents still anti-Jewish? Well, that all depends on what you mean by anti-Jewish. I mean, the short answer, if I had to give you the five second answer, I would say no, they're not anti-Jewish. What we're seeing come out of the church is supersessionist. And, and I'll, I'll define that in a second, but before I define it, I'll just say the question is to what degree would we as Jews who are engaged in the modern world tolerate supersessionism? And so supersessionism is also known as replacement theory by which I mean this idea that the early followers of Jesus came along in the first century and accepted a covenant offered to them by God through Christ, through Jesus, that effectively replaced the old covenant that the Israelites received and also negated the continuing legitimacy of that older covenant. So that's called replacement theory. Now, there are different kinds of supersessionism. And by the way, every religious community is supersessionist to a degree in the sense that you're inheriting, you're entering into a certain social reality, you're taking certain things and then you're rebranding them, right? Like our Shalosh Regalim are rebranded. Obviously, I'm not saying that they're meaningless or meaningful, but they are connected with uh, agricultural celebrations that existed in the ancient world. So there's what scholars such as Novak refer to as hard supersessionism and soft supersessionism. And so hard supersessionism would be the traditional the traditional anti-Judaism that we might be familiar with, the accusation that Jews no longer have a covenant with God, that they've been replaced um, by Christians, that they stand in opposition to all the values that Jesus embodied, and so on. 
soft supersessionism is, is a more uh, tolerable brand of supersessionism. And here you might say that the Jews can be saved, but the nature, and this is what we're seeing in a lot of the papal documents that have come out in the past 25 years. The nature of Jewish salvation is mysterious because we cannot reconcile it with the fact that Jews have not accepted the truth through, I'll say it again, Christ. But I, I always warn people when I say that because out of all the pushback I get when I teach, people get angriest about me saying that word. Okay, well, why do you say that word then? Why are you insistent on saying that word? Because it's like Voldemort. Why should I empower Jesus by saying he who shall not be named? I believe that by saying Christ, what I'm saying is the human figure who lives and died as a mortal, as he was viewed by his followers who thought he was Messiah. So I only say Christ when I'm talking about the Christian perception of Jesus. Mm -hmm. But I really think we need to defang it. I think we need to um, neutralize these words that are thought to have a lot of power. I mean, I grew up hearing people say Yashka or saying just very silly reworkings of Jesus's name. To me, that empowers Jesus. Jesus, in my opinion, was a person, again, who lived and died as a human being. Nothing beyond that. Uh, and so let's call him Jesus, please. And then it's okay to say Christ as he was perceived that way through his followers. This is, uh, you know, I think I'm very ineffective in my, pardon me, crusade. <laughs> um, but, Carefully chosen word indeed. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think we really empower these terms. So I try to actually use them. Now, there are different variations of soft supersessionism. Some are more acceptable than others. The kind of model that John Polakowski tries to advance is this kind of dual covenant theory that Jews can be saved, Christians can be saved, and they have these parallel covenants that move towards this eschatological, this end of time salvation moment. And he is very much in the minority. Uh, he's considered quite radical for that position. Even Catholics who will accept soft supersessionism and not hard supersessionism, still most of them are not comfortable with dual covenant theory. So now I'm going to go 180 degrees away from what I was talking about before and take the Rav and flip it. I think he would probably say something similar, though I don't know. Why should Jews care if they're hard supersessionists or soft supersessionists as long as there's no persecution? And perhaps I can say with the state of Israel, we have greater likelihood of being protected. Let them believe whatever they want to believe. That's their own private faith commitment. They're not telling us what to believe. They're not allowed to tell us what to believe. How can we tell them, you know, you can't really be supersessionist. Replacement theology is unacceptable. How do we do that? Maybe we shouldn't. First of all, it's, a, it's another great question. And without trying to take on the rub, that's not my intention at all. I think it's a very effective defensive strategy to be properly understood as a Jew. And at the end of the day, all of my work is about seeking proper understanding. Now, I always tell my Christian students, you would not want me to learn about Christianity from a Jew. I do not want you to learn about Judaism from a Christian. I'm here so that you can understand Judaism as Jews understand it. Now, the reason why this is important is because of what I said a few minutes ago, which is that verbal rhetoric always, always results when it's violent rhetoric in physical violence. And so I don't have a problem saying, look, uh, by the way, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just stop myself right there. There are Jewish theologians who say that they are theologically and spiritually enriched 
by dialogue in a way that they never could be if they weren't in dialogue with others. I include Lord Rabbi Dr. Jonathan Sachs, who got in a lot of trouble, by the way, people often forget. He got in a lot of trouble for talking about sort of being enriched by the truth that exists in other religions. A Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, you know, is known for that position. Somehow he's considered more controversial than Rabbi Sachs, who's considered totally mainstream and central orthodox and, you know, not controversial at all. But they both said this and many others too. David Rosen at the AJC talk about how enriched they are. That's real. That's meaningful. And I think it's possible. I think it's very possible to be enriched. But I don't think you have to make a demand of every Jew to enter into the dialogue because they need that to be a full Jew. In other words, there's a difference between being enriched, which I think is, I'm not mocking it. I think that that's very substantive and genuine. But is that a requirement on every Jew? No, I don't. I am comfortable. We talk about hard and soft uh, supersessionism. I'm comfortable talking about two kinds of dialogue. And the main kind of dialogue is, this is my defensive strategy because I'm entitled to be properly understood as a Jew. You think with Judaism all the time. And I think Jews don't realize this. Christians think with Judaism. They think with Judaism on a daily basis, observing Christians, through their scriptures, through their homilies, through their prayers. And so do we want them to engage with the hermeneutical Jew of their imagination that actually has no correlation with the reality of living and thriving Judaism? Or do we want to be properly represented? And it is a defensive strategy because thank you very much. I would like my, my descendants to not be killed. So are there moments where I am theologically enriched by this dialogue? Absolutely. That's not the daily motivator for me though. Okay. You're talking about the motivations. You're talking about our motivations to be properly understood. So what does the Catholic Church want to achieve for its members in dialogue with Judaism? Mm, obviously, part of it is an incredible discomfort with the history of anti-Jewish rhetoric and violence that is so in contradiction with the teachings of the Second Vatican Council and particularly with Nostra Aetate. I think the church wants to live out its stated mission and values, which is that the church is a church of love uh, and peace. Now, anyone who knows church history knows especially as a Jew, that um, depending on what period of history and what location you're thinking about, that claim could be viewed as ludicrous. But to their credit, church leaders are trying to harmonize that self-understanding uh, with their policies. And, um, you know, like I said, they're thinking about Jews in a way that they're not thinking about other people outside of their Christian tradition. They maintain controversial question is the christian jewish relationship special and distinct in contrast to let's say the christian muslim relationship it's a very controversial question many of my colleagues will say no absolutely not we would never prioritize we would never privilege one relationship over another and i would say oh it absolutely is the i mean wouldn't nostratate itself demonstrate that Jews are the only group that has a special section dedicated to Judaism. No other religion has a special paragraph that's for them. Only Jews, as far as I know. And many Christians take issue with that privileging. Mm. I've heard colleagues uh, today, you know, in, in the 21st century say, if No Shratate were to be written today, the church should not, I, I'm, I'm losing my grammar here a little bit, but No Shratate would not have been or should not have been written if it was written now in a way that privileges the jewish people 
But isn't it necessary simply because that was the people that more than any other, as we all know, had been persecuted, culminating in the Shoah, admitted or not, by the Catholics? I agree with that entirely. And I, that's why I think that the relationship between Jews and Christians does have a distinctive nature to it. And I think that there's uh, an ethical incumbency on Christians to engage with living and thriving Judaism. I personally do not feel that responsibility lies with all Jews. But I do think that any Christian today should actively seek out living Judaism to nuance and uh, undermine a little bit the tradition of their scriptures, which is so inaccurate and so damaging. I want to go back to something we talked about a while ago regarding attitudes towards Israel. You mentioned that Catholic attitudes towards Israel are more complex and more complicated than those of the evangelicals, somewhat for theological reasons and in some ways because of political reasons, of fear of other church leaders who are in the Middle East. What, in your opinion, what, from what you see, is the general attitude of Catholics towards Israel? I'm guessing it's not as strong as that of evangelicals, or at least of many evangelicals, older evangelicals, but is it an improving relationship, a stagnant relationship? Is it getting worse? Or just to clarify... The political hesitation about nurturing a relationship with the state of Israel is not about fear of church leaders. It's about fear of radical Islam harming those communities. So I just want to lay it out there. Okay. That they would come to harm is what I meant. Yes. Sure. Okay. Uh, So how do Catholics feel about Israel? Well, the Catholic community, at least from where I sit in the United States, is very divided politically, just like the Orthodox community. Um, You have about 50% of the uh, population, the Catholic population, and many of that includes uh, first-generation immigrants, many from Central America and South America. These Catholics tend to be politically conservative. Uh, They often, they tend to vote Republican. They tend to have a more traditional attitude towards Jews, and yet they also tend to be more pro-Israel, those Catholics. And then you have the uh, Catholics of Catholic Theological Union, which is a very, very progressive space, a very politically aware space. And I would say that it's on the sort of left end of the spectrum. And uh, I'm not going to say so much as an employee of Catholic Theological Union, but um, the kinds of students and affiliates that would be attracted to such as the one that I teach would be under pressure to express criticism. You see how careful I'm being, Scott? Yes. (laughs) To express criticism of the state of Israel and perhaps to support BDS and to even accuse Israel of apartheid. Again, these are broad generalizations. It doesn't mean that all of my colleagues and students do that. But we are seeing in those more progressive Catholic spaces a very uh, strong critique of Israel that looks totally different from what you see in the evangelical world. Now, is that pressure coming from their Catholicism or coming from their progressivism or we can't know? So it's it's so interesting because it's a Catholicized brand. So in other words, they're very progressive, very active politically, and they draw on Christian tradition to support their arguments that I think can border on very problematic, even anti-Jewish claims. Uh, You know, just put Israel aside for a second. This claim that we find very commonly in progressive Catholic spaces, Jesus was a woke feminist. 
<laughs> Jesus, no, he was. And Jesus, again, through this approach, and Jesus was pro-LGBT. And Jesus was not white, you know, forget that. I mean, but, but Jews that, are. Right. Jews are, Jews are white. Jesus was Palestinian. You actually see that in Palestinian yep. Christian theology, by the way. And so this Jesus was concerned, you know, with Black Lives Matter. And, and this Jesus would have been alarmed by the colonialism that European Jews engaged in uh, by exploiting the horrors of the Holocaust after World War II to settle and then steal other people's land. Wow. And that's a politicization that draws on old Christian ideas about the Jews not having a right to that land, right? That's an old Christian idea. Jews do not have, you know, Jews, I think, naively make a historic argument. There's always been Jews or almost always continuous Jewish presence in the land of Israel. And we know biblically, we know from these old, old texts that Jews were connected and they were called Judeans, for goodness sake. All of that is meaningless to a Catholic or a Christian who believes that, that's very well and good, but guess what happened when Jesus was killed on the cross? All of that's negated. Jews no longer have any right to that land. So you can go on and on and on about the covenant with Abraham, you know, and, and the land of Canaan in Genesis, doesn't matter to us because we're looking at the other Testament. So- That's really disturbing. It sounds like it's going back to pre-Vatican II. I mean- Oh yeah. And, and so it's a weird combination, Scott, of very what I would call progressivist values and at the same time, really traditional images um, that precede the Second Vatican Council. That's disturbing, but I'll leave that there. And I want to clarify, I'm not trying to say anything negative about LGBT rights or Black Lives Matter or any of that, only to say that those values, which I think contain very important lessons about human integrity are positioned as values that Zionists reject. And that Jesus supported, right. in contrast. Right. So I, Malka, am not saying that these values are not Jewish. I'm saying that they're presented as values that in the first century and on, Jewish opponents of Jesus did not value. And that's a false binary. Right. And ironically, it's drawing on these very ancient, very not progressivist stereotypes about Jews. All right. Very disturbing to hear that. I want to ask another question. We're coming close to the end. From conversations I've had with evangelicals and also conversations I've overheard with evangelicals, I've heard it claimed that one of the main differences between the evangelical willingness to engage with Jews and the Catholic willingness to engage with Jews is that because evangelicals, at least, again, broad strokes, I'm not trying to paint them any certain way, but broadly don't have the same concept of the church with a capital C, which is a divine entity, they're more willing to own up to mistakes of the past. They can say, yes, Christians have been terrible in the past, but that's not us. That's, that's my ancestors, and they were wrong, and they're burning in hell. But we don't do that anymore. Whereas Catholics can't say that to the same degree, because implying that the church was mistaken, at least on a theological level, however you define the church as such versus its members, but saying that the church made a mistake means that it can't really own up to the past. I'll use that just as, I don't know if you agree with that or disagree with that, but I, I'll use that as sort of, well, I'll ask you first. Do you think that that's a fair distinction? Then I'll ask my question. I've never heard of that distinction. It makes sense to me, except that there's a very uh, easy workaround for Catholics, which is that when they produce a new statement, 
they simply write as the church has always taught, which is kind of what Nostra Aetate does. If you don't think this is inherent to our teaching, then you're simply reading the scriptures incorrectly. By the way, Jews do the same thing. We, we uh, our, our social sensibilities change over time, our ethical sensibilities change over time. And then we look to the past to find seeds of that sensibility so that we can grasp on to um, something that we would claim is continuous to the tradition. So I actually, I think it's kind of charming. I don't mean that even condescendingly. I, th I think it's it's a workaround that they that they use. But yes, okay. go on. Okay. So my question really then is to launch into a, just a brief question. We're not talking about Protestant Christians today, but just a quick thought about Christian Jewish dialogue from the Protestant perspective, do you think that this is something which Jews should be wary of? In other words, we've talked about a lot of the problems that come with Jewish Catholic dialogue, but in some ways, the evangelical dialogue is often presented as, we don't really want to convert you. Whether we believe them or not depends probably on the individual Christian being approached. Do you feel that Jewish-Christian relations in the evangelical sphere are an overall positive, or are Jews jumping in too quickly without being careful? The second... You know, right. I have concerns about both kinds of dialogue, and yet I've committed my career to it. So it's not a matter of saying this dialogue is worthless and it's not not worth our time. Um, if there is an evangelical who says we absolutely commit to not wanting to convert you, we simply want to partner with you in whatever social, political, theological way, then that's fine. And in fact, I am in a couple dialogue groups with evangelicals and we uh, do not talk about Israel, but we talk about theological developments in our communities. And those groups are some of the most amazing Jewish Christian dialogue experiences that I have been having recently. So I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say there's no hope for a Jewish evangelical dialogue. There is. And there's also change that's happening in evangelical leadership, especially in North America, when it comes to how to preach about the Jews. But the moment that I feel that I am an extra on the Christian stage, on the Christian play, that I am a friend, you know, the tree in the background of the first grade play, that's, you know, I'm not a featured part, I'm not a major protagonist, but I'm on the stage. Um, the moment that I feel that I am merely an actor in an eschatological, that's a big word, but it, it is sort of like end of time story, Ultimately, the unspoken elephant in the room is that ends with my destruction. It, it no longer is a functioning or a true dialogue. I am very concerned that many Orthodox Jews are so enamored with the political alliances that these evangelical groups offer that they're not interrogating the nature of those particular dialogue partners. Now, it, again, many of these partners are very quick to say, we will not preach anti-Judaism. We want to hear how you understand yourselves. We do not believe that you should be demonized. You know, and and I, I think that's great, but I have seen some Orthodox friends and colleagues willing, in my opinion, to sacrifice their theological integrity for political partnership. What do and you mean? I, how does that happen? Well, because they're partnering on Zionist I say that like it's a bad word. I'm a Zionist. I support Israel. But they're, they're partnering um, in political ways that I think negatively impacts their own community. For example, are evangelical and Orthodox Jews the same when it comes to abortion? 
Scott? Are they the same when it comes to family law? Are they the same when it comes to divorce? Are they the same when it comes to contraception? I'm talking mainly about things that affect women. And I feel personally encroached <laughs> when I see these partnerships that actually do not advance the integrity of women in my community or theirs, or at least the way that I understand it. Uh, there's a big movement that got a lot of attention a few months ago, which showed that Haredi, that many Orthodox women were reading self-help marriage books produced by evangelical or fundamentalist Christian women uh, that really focused on obedience to the husband. Is that something that I think is, um, you know, ethically responsible? Um, no, I don't think it advances human integrity. That's again, my opinion. So I'm just saying, I think we need to walk slower. In other words, why jump into these political alliances? Um, I know that there's financial incentive. I know that there's political incentive. I think we need to be very careful and confident in stating where we stand and what those boundaries are. And we have to keep insisting on being understood through our own self-understanding. It's so interesting you say that. I'm fully on board with that idea. In fact, the last Intimate Judaism that Talia Rosenbaum and I recorded was about The Surrendered Wife, an interview with Laura Doyle. So I know what you're talking about, and I'm, I'm on the same page. We're out of time, Malka, but I want to ask one final question about the future for Jewish Christian dialogue and Jewish Catholic dialogue in particular. I remember, I think it was over a year ago, about a year ago, Rev. Judah Michel was on my podcast and he said something which I thought was fantastic, even though he said it just in passing. He quoted Henri Nguyen, the Catholic theologian, and then he says, may his merit protect us. And that obviously is a very interesting thing to say, which I appreciated. And you also mentioned being spiritually enriched from dialogue with others, from what they say. Do you think, from your experiences, being really in the center of this, that that's a possibility for many of us, or is that something only for individuals? And in general, what does the future hold for Jewish-Catholic dialogue? First of all, I think that the train has left the station on dialogue. It's happening whether Orthodox Jews want it to happen or not. It was happening since 1968 when Orthodox the Orthodox Union was sending representatives to the Vatican uh, to confer on various uh documents and that is a relationship that continues of course it was under the radar for many many decades now it's emerging uh in raw daylight uh we have orthodox rabbinic statements produced uh in 2015 and 2017 if any listeners want to look them up they're called um to do the will of our father in heaven which is the 2015 document and then between jerusalem and rome in 2017, these are Orthodox rabbinic statements that deeply and theologically and very seriously engage in uh, the nature of what it would look like to continue a friendship, a relationship specifically with the church. So the train has left the station. Now, the question really is how patient are we, right? What are our goals and what is our timeline? I think change is going to happen. I'm uh, In this regard, I'm an optimist. I think it's going to take generations. And I think we have to be wary that anti-Semitism is always there and uh, expresses itself in so many different permutations and variations. So it's not that I'm hopeful that we're going to um, get rid of these old stereotypes, but we have to persist in dialogue to combat them. Um, and I think that friendships based on a respect of boundaries is really the solution to moving forward. And I do think that over the next few generations, we're going to see a continued relationship specifically between Orthodox Jewish representatives and the Catholic Church who see their own sort of, I hate to say this, but mirror image. They see Orthodox Jews as their 
the standard bearers of the tradition in a way that resonates with them. And uh, this is all very new. We're watching it unfold now, but I think that some interesting things are going to be happening in the next few years. Malka, this has been so interesting. I learned so much today, and I really appreciate your coming on and being so frank about your opinions regarding Jewish Christian dialogue, Jewish Catholic dialogue, what's going on in the Catholic Church. I told you beforehand, oh, I don't know if you want to answer these questions, but you answered everything. So I really do appreciate it, and I want to thank you for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was a real pleasure. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.